Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. You remember Oliver Sacks as both scientist and storyteller, the neurologist with best-selling narrative power, a doctor of souls. I'm an incontinent storyteller. I, I can't stop it. And it's, you know, and, um, but a lot of medicine consists of stories. People tell me their stories, they give me their lives, and, and, and narrative is an essential part. But then, unlike a novelist, one also, though perhaps it's a bit more like a detective story, you have to ask what's going on in the person. Before he died four years ago, at 82, Oliver Sacks had written about the complexities inside. He was a Jewish atheist who held the composers Bach and Mendelssohn to be divine. From an eminent medical family in London, he was both gay and homophobic till late in life. He was a reckless biker and a druggie in his California days, a prodigious weightlifter with a Schwarzenegger body. For more than 30 years, Lawrence Weschler of The New Yorker had been filing conversational sketches of his friend Sachs toward a giant magazine profile. The project ground to a halt when Sachs insisted that his homosexuality was off-limits. But after Sachs himself had told his own secrets, the doctor insisted that Weschler finally publish his version. Lawrence, known as Wren Weschler's title, is And How Are You, Dr. Sachs? At the foundation of the book and our conversation is Weschler's eye on Oliver Sacks in his medical rounds year after year, back to the early 80s when his first literary masterpiece emerged. Awakenings was later a movie with Robin Williams as Sacks and Robert De Niro as one of his patients. Book and movie opened up the soul life of people with an unexplained sleeping sickness, frozen and stiff from influenza for 30 years and more. Awakenings, when it came out, people don't remember, but precisely they don't remember because nobody was aware of it. It was thoroughly dismissed by the medical profession. You know, how could you have done this without doing double blind, you know, and peer reviewed and all that stuff? And so they just dismissed it and they, th- they thought he was making it up, that he was confabulated and so forth. The point is, he in those days, and really that throughout his career, primarily pitched his practice in back wards of state hospitals with the Little Sisters of the Poor. In the old days, you'd say poor houses, but whatever, uh, homes for the incurable, you know, out-of-the-way places. He used to quote Hewlings Jackson, who was one of the founders of modern neurology, one of the 19th century, early 20th century heroes, and, and who said that that's where all the jewels are. Mm. And I think it's where all the jewels are because you can take time. They have nothing but time. And as opposed to people at big hospitals where they're trying to get cured for right away and things like that, and where there's a great pressure to throw them back into the world and things like that, these are people who have been pretty much abandoned, warehoused. And he would show up. He was the only visiting neurologist for the various Little Sisters of the Poor places in New York. I sent him a letter in the middle of this period of his great reclusion <laughs> where he was just a recluse 
and I got his address, and I sent him a letter, and I said, I'd read Awakenings, and you call the place Mount Carmel. Mm. And I get it, Long Night of the Soul, St. John of the Cross, all those kinds of illusions in the context of Awakenings. Mm. But the book seems much more Kabbalistic to me, much more Jewish mystical than Christian mystical. Mm. Am I wrong? And I got back this handwritten eight-page letter. As a matter of fact, the place is called Beth Abraham. My first cousin is Abba Iban. My greatest hero is A.R. Luria, the great Soviet neuropsychologist. So who knows, maybe he is related to Luria, who did the Zohar, which is the great founding document of Kabbalism. You know, and he, and he went on and on. And it just happened to be the question that opened, the, that unlocked, mm. unlocked his, his shyness, actually. I mean, he was very having to talk. And so we started corresponding that way. He's not the man that the world came to know later on in the sense, or he was more fully himself. Mm. Once he does finally break out of that writer's block, and there's a whole wave of things that come right after that, uh, which become the man who mistook his wife for a hat, which is a bestseller. And at that point, he becomes the public intellectual and the and the great teddy bear neurologist that of, of popular culture. But before that, he was quite different he used to, when we would go on rounds, he would sometimes describe himself as a clinical ontologist, hmm. by which he meant that he was a doctor or a clinician for whom the diagnostic question with any fresh patient was, how are you? How do you be? Ethics is behavior or right behavior. Aesthetics is, is beauty. Ontology is being, the philosophy of being. And he was interested in these particularly extreme cases of people at, at far remove, people that his friend called the community of the refused. Mm. And if you just looked at the chart, and that's, by the way, what most neurologists did in those days, because they were paid in a way that encouraged them to just look at the chart. Okay, fine. Yeah, okay. There's good titration there. Go. Okay, next one. You know, and they go on. He wouldn't look at the chart at all, or he'd look at it for a second and then sit down. And he would talk for, you know, 10 minutes or two hours. A story he told me, which precedes the time that I was with him, but when he was still a resident back in London, so he had gotten his degree, his medical degree at Oxford, and he was at Middlesex Hospital in London. And he tells the story of there being a Selenese tea planter, you know, from Sri Lanka. And he was in the throes of uremic delirium. And Oliver went and sat with this guy. So this is a young 23, 24-year-old Oliver. And all the other doctors are doing what doctors do. But he went and sat with him for 36 straight hours and entered his delirium or as Oliver put it, had the great, great privilege of being allowed to be in the man's delirium. That At, a, at the six-hour point, he began to get the rhythms of it, and he would start saying things within the rhythms of it. And the two of them, in some kind of sense, melded, and in some ways, Oliver hopes he was of solace to him. But for him, it was this great experience. So many complexities right there about... Oliver Sacks, and I want to almost list them. The New York Times at some point said he was the poet laureate of contemporary medicine, but in fact, he was way out of step with medicine as it was practiced, as you just say, and equally out of step with the way medicine is going in the genomic direction. Show me your sequence DNA and we'll, we'll fix something. 
or the narrowly siloed thing of medicine that doctors are specialized in this very yeah, absolutely. narrow side of way. He comes at it, what, as a literary man, but the imagination is key, originality of observation, identification. He's English, he's American, he's a celebrity, but he's shy. He's a, by all shy accounts... Shy when not grandiose. <laughs> yeah, but he's a kind of bumbling genius, right. an absent-minded professor, never quite... People used to call him at his little house there in, um, in City, Island. City Island in the Bronx just to make sure he hadn't burned it down. My brother was there once, and why are they calling him? They just want to be sure I haven't burned the house down. Right, right. He was immensely clumsy, spectacularly clumsy. And yet an athlete, you know, a motorcyclist, right. weightlifter. Well, at <laughs> a weightlifter, yes. No, I mean, it's just all those things, absolutely. But it's important to realize that in response to his orthodox mother's, to whom he was extremely close. I think she was, was the very first woman surgeon in England, or one of the very first. She was, and they knew that they had a prodigy. The father was also mm-hmm. a doctor on their hands, but they didn't know quite what to do with him. And the mother would do things like, she was an OBGYN surgeon, and so she would come home when he was eight years old and bring him fetuses, for him to dissect. Oh. <laughs> she wow. would read him his, her favorite author, who was D.H. Lawrence, this woman who was also an Orthodox Jew. At the age of 12, she took him along because she thought it would be interesting for him to a dissection of a 12-year-old boy who had committed suicide. My word. I mean, it was a really... But, but uh, having said that, they were very intense, very close. And when he was 20 years old, he says to his father who asks him, why don't you ever bring home any girlfriends? He says, Father, I'm a homosexual. Please don't tell Mother it would destroy her. Hmm. And the next morning, she came tearing down the stairs and launched into hours and hours of deuteronomical cursing, as he put it. Abomination stuff. Abomination, filth of the bowel, I wish you had never been born, then fell silent. They didn't talk to each other, these very close two people, for like three or four weeks. When they began talking again, it was never mentioned again during her lifetime. But that was the voice he had going on in his head. Mm. So for all the times that you see him confident and, and capacious and so forth, he also at the same time has this voice, shut up, die, you don't deserve to be, and so forth. There's a wreck result of that castigation was he fled England at the earliest possible opportunity and got residencies in California, in San Francisco and in Los Angeles. He was for three years very out. He was in the leather scene. He was a motorcyclist. He was on the fringes of Hell's Angels. They called him Dr. Squat because he was also the champion squat lifter now you write 600 pounds. Six, well, I don't write. That's what it is. I have the newspaper. Uh, 600 pounds. a third pounds. of a ton. Uh, uh, and that made him the California heavyweight champion lifter. But the, but the other thing that was very important was that he was he took unbelievable amounts of drugs. Dosages that would kill anyone else. But because he was so strong, he didn't get die. But he would get on his motorcycle and drive for 36 hours straight. He'd drive from L.A. up to Crater Lake around Crater Lake Mm. and back without stopping except for gas. 
He'd start on a Saturday morning and return like Sunday And he Sunday was night. high or high as a flying? Kite. He was out on speed. He was a he was a, a speed freak. Lawrence Rush's book, At Long Last, is titled, And How Are You, Dr. Sachs? Coming up, the bedside manner of a doctor who tried to become his patients. This is Open Source. The neurologist Oliver Sachs was given to volcanic rages off the job. With his patients, he was all tender attention. Years ago, the PBS NewsHour caught his sensitivity on the hospital ward. Do the, do the two of you get out on some excursions? Yes, we go out from we here. Go yes. we go well, where do you usually go? We go to the racetrack. The racetrack. Which one? <laughs> Belmont? Belmont. Yeah. Belmont. <laughs> you, you, uh, yeah. Did you win anything last time? Well, uh, we when lose. you lose. We lose. Yes. We win, we lose. Yes, you sound philosophical about yeah. it. <laughs> I'm addicted to patients. I, I can't do without them. I need to have the feeling of, of, of these other lives which, are, which become a part of my own. Um, empathy isn't enough. I wish I could be in their shoes or know more exactly what it's like. My parents both trained neurologically. Uh, it was sort of taken for granted that I would follow them. They were not only physicians, they were storytellers, especially my mother. She used to love to tell stories about patients. She'd tell these to everyone, to the milkman, to the gardener, you know, uh, equally to, to her students and, and colleagues. She didn't entirely distinguish sort of professional discourse from ordinary discourse, and, and I don't distinguish it either. Renrisha, I keep wishing Oliver Sacks would examine Oliver Sacks and explain well, with all that sensitivity what was going on in his own life. He was, by the way, in psychoanalysis for 50 years almost with the same guy. What did he learn? He wouldn't talk about it in so many words, but there's no question in my mind that, that this man helped keep him sane. When he arrived, he was out of control. And he looked at himself in the mirror one day and said, if I keep this up for six more months, I'll be dead. Hmm. And he basically quits it took a few more years for the drugs he quits sex and drugs cold turkey and he is at that point celibate for what would become 35 years when i first met him it was the first 15 years of it he radically cuts back on the drugs and he enters analysis and the and i, I think for starters the analyst cured him of being of a speed addiction this this particular analyst, his his name is Shengold, that's known Leonard Shengold, and he himself is, is a great writer. When you read his books, there's a certain amount of discussion of how traumatized childhoods can themselves be the occasions for self-fashioning and, in fact, for great creativity. And there's mm. no question in my mind, not so much... I mean. There are very many roots that we could talk about, about why he was unpleasant or complicated, or at very least I call it incredibly exasperating. Hmm. There was a period where he was coming over to our house for dinner two or three times a week. We lived right near City Island, and, and you never know, knew which Oliver was coming. And if you had guests, he could be the most expansive, charming, wonderful person, or he could just be dour and monstrously uh, 
he would just say terrible things about people or even completely unaware of how, mm. how obnoxious he was being. But I think with the analysis that he was in, he was able to marshal that. And the, coming back once again to the main theme of our discussion so far is going out on rounds with him. It wasn't that he identified with these pe- people in extreme situations, but he had access to an initial empathy. He could see, I mean, for example, I often say that the most amazing moment in his career was not, as many people who've seen the movie of Awakenings think, the idea to give L-Dopa to these patients who had been living statues for 30 years. He's the Robin Williams character, right? He's the Robin Williams character. When he arrives, he has the audacious thought that some of these people are not like the others and that some of the most frozen, some of the older ones, not only is there an interior life going on, but it's been going on for 30 years. And none of the other neurologists who came through that had imagined that, who had been able to think that. But this is a guy who had been on benders on speed and on, on quaaludes and on every other, he has taken every drug. So the initial thing, he could look at a person like that and say, you know, there's something going on in there. And that would become the occasion for him spending hours with it. He, he created a separate population. They made a ward for just the 80 of the 500 people there who were, when they went back and looked at the files and saw that they'd all come in in 1927, 28, 29, or, mm. you know, things like that. And that was the astonishing thing. And by the way, the the myth of Oliver Sacks is that his greatness is that he gave them L-Dopa and brought them to life. Uh, L-Dopa was a, a new treatment for Parkinsonism, which was at the time a almost messianic drug. People right. thought it was a complete cure. He didn't believe in messianic drugs, and he wasn't that interested in pharmacopoeia. He would have been happy, he says, to have just spent the rest of his life with those 80 people in the condition that they were in and making, reaching out to them and reaching them and so forth. The L-Dopa came later. But my feeling is that that is the great moment. Spell yeah. that out. Well, The, the great moment... The, the great moment was, the great and harrowing moment was to realize that often people who are extremely impacted, afflicted, whatever else, kind of, for our own comfort, we say, well, they're, they're vegetables, mm. i.e. we don't have any responsibility to relate to them as human beings mm. uh, in a profound kind of I-thou interaction because they're gone, you know. And you're not going to get to their awareness, to their experience, to their ontology with genomic studies and with charts. You're not going to find things necessarily. One of the things he used to say also when we would go on rounds is he he used to say, my subject is the intersection of fate and freedom. Mm. Interesting. That, That no matter what horrible thing has happened, has befallen you, you are not just an object, the, or the other is not just an object, no matter how extremely impacted they are, that that a tendril and sometimes a throbbing, beating heart of subjectivity persists. And that's what he wants to reach. Ren Rushdie, I'm going to be out of interviewing character for a moment, because so many of these connections are personal. My father had severe Parkinson's attributed to influenza, he eventually took L-Dopa, had a momentary relief from that frozen body 
syndrome, but it didn't didn't last. The family read Awakenings with intense interest. Secondly, my youngest brother went from Yale into a lifetime of not treating, but living with in community, severely handicapped people, mentally, autistic, Down syndrome, epileptic, and others. Oliver was also the youngest brother. Interesting. because And then they met, and they compared notes. I think they had a very comparable, from different places, they had a comparable ability to see the complete person in intentional consciousness inside there. But third, I interviewed him. Most important, maybe, though, we're all fascinated by the convergences of medical practice, from the guy with the black bag walking in the house to genomic medicine. And Dr. Sachs didn't fit any of those categories. He was out of another place. Situate him sort of historically. He's a literary figure as much as a medical figure, an imaginative artistic figure. My brother also has spent a lot of time liberating the artist in Down syndrome people, which connected them. But... Where did Sachs come from, do you think? <laughs> he himself would glob on to, to Darwin, to, uh, to uh, Humboldt, the, yes. the great Prussian uh, naturalist. He would often say that had he not been a neurologist, he would have been a naturalist. And as a neurologist, he was a naturalist. Had he, what he actually said, if I wasn't a Jewish neurologist, I would be a Gentile uh, naturalist in, in the Sierras. You know? But in answer to your question, his contemporaries, and I mean this literally, his consulting physicians, the people he talked to, were Harvey, were, were Leibniz, were, uh, who he considered the ultimate physician, were Bach, by the way. Uh, Burton, the anatomy of melancholy. I was going to say, these are the people. These are the people he had as his contemporaries. But it is absolutely true that when he writes Awakenings, it is dismissed completely. As he was dying, on his 82nd birthday, there was a party for him, and the head of neurology at Columbia University, this guy got up and said, nowadays, this is three years ago, when I am going through the applications for residency for people who finish medical school but want to be residents in neurology at Columbia, Mm. 70% of them cite Oliver Sacks as the reason they want to do neurology. So that is the sea change over and beyond his literary imaginative works, over beyond all the people he helped in his life, over and beyond the fact that, for example, nobody had ever heard of Tourette's before he began talking about it. And now you see people being Tourette's, and you say, oh, they have Tourette's. That's, all, uh, that's Oliver. Oliver was enormously influential in the world of the deaf. He was incredibly important for Parkinsonians, for migraine sufferers, and so forth. Across the board, he did all that. But I think in some ways the most amazing thing he did is he did provoke this sea change in neurology. And if you were to sum up, and I keep returning to the going on rounds, he would sometimes say to me, what I am trying to do, sometimes he would say the neurology of the soul, but he would more often say the neurology of identity. He was much, much more interested in the person who had the disease than the disease the person had. (laughs) And he was interested in the particular manifestation, the particular intersection of fate and freedom. 
that the fate mm. was whatever had happened to you, but the freedom was your space, even within the delimited space. It was always 360 degrees of space, no matter how exactly. shrunken it was. Oh, by the way, when he arrived at Bronx State Hospital in the middle of winter, the first thing that would happen was the nurses or the nuns at, at, at Little Sisters would put on their sweaters because the first thing you would do is throw open the windows because he was always too hot. Everybody got frozen. And in fact, they would put bl- they had blankets, piles of blankets to put around the patients as they sat in the room because he was in his shirt sleeves <laughs> with, with 30 degrees wind coming in. He would sit there and talk to them and, and he would have these amazing conversations. And, and he'd open a suitcase and his suitcase, the, the, his tools were a reflex hammer and a foam ball. And, and the foam ball he would throw. And, and because, as he would say, being is doing. Mm. Being is activating. And there are, uh, this may have been true of your father, who may have been virtually frozen with with tremors and so forth, but if you threw a ball at him, he could catch a ball. Just it's part of the story. Parkinsonians could always respond to a sudden stimulus. Right. The house is on fire. He'll be carrying people out. Right. But a point with Oliver is that a Parkinsonian, and this may have been true of your father, crossing the street may suddenly freeze, often because of this of the pedestrian, the lines on the pedestrian walk, uh, that freezes them up. But if you put your hand on their mm. shoulder, you can convey your dynamic physicality, and they'll just walk across the thing. You take your hand off, and they'll stop walking. Yeah. Uh, and it is in a wider sense in a what we would call soul to soul human me but what he would at least call it identity to identity i thou that's what he was doing he was there to help people who had been being ignored come up with their own stories hmm. this was a therapeutic activity he helped the patients compose themselves hmm. turn their fate into narrative and it wasn't that he he would say sometimes you have to invent the truth or imagine the truth through an act of projective imagination, right. see whether it meets the person. If it does, you have to go back and check the literature. <laughs> None of the literature is going to be literature of the last 50 years. It's all literature that goes back to you know the Victorian period. I was going to say, that's not modern medicine he's practicing there right, at all. Right, right. Go back to 1973, uh-huh. this book, Awakenings, right. a masterpiece, one of the great books of the 20th century, without question. Yeah. He imagined it as an epic, knowing, and we learned it from him in a way, that more people had died of influenza than had died in combat during right. World War One. Yeah. Yeah. There's your starting point, but also to see the whole human being living all of those years behind a mask. Tell us how he conceived it and and again, the triumph of that book, yeah. which was virtually unnoticed until, of course, Robin Williams and Robert De Niro right. made it a famous movie. Right. Well, I've talked about how he comes to this place. By the way, he arrives there because he is thrown bodily out of laboratory medicine. <laughs> he turned out to be a complete klutz doing things with test tubes and centrifuges. He would lose all his notes. He, this was at Albert Einstein in New York. He was kicked out of the labs and sent to the most remote, useless places, Beth Abraham. You can't do any damage there. They're completely hopeless there already. And that's where it begins. He made this community. He was studying them and so forth. And then Eldopa comes along. He has his doubts, but he does give it to them. And there is this Mozart-like awakening. Hmm. where within hours, they just 
suddenly are completely alive. It Astor, didn't last in my well, father's but, case, and I don't think it lasted well, in that, many other the point. There was this woman of Mozartian awakening that became more and more chaotic, and it became bedlam. It was a period of insane side effects, horrible, horrible side effects. So the people died. At first, they thought it was titration. There was a woman who had huge, horrible oculogyric crises, which is to say that she threw her eyes back into the back of her skull and her head up into the sky and, and just frozen there. And if they lowered the doses, she would have epileptic seizures. Mm. And if they raised the dosages, she would have oculogyric. And they lowered, you know, and they kept on trying to get it closer and closer and closer until they finally achieved a perfect balance where she had both at the same time. Mm. Which was a moment where you realize this is hell that they've come into. Eventually, the months passed, and they achieved a kind of accommodation, which is say that they had a kind of surcease. They were not as bad as they had originally been. They were never as good as they were at the Awakenings moment, but they persisted mm-hmm. and formed communities and so forth among themselves. And what he did then was he had a general uh, outline of the situation. He gave you a background. He gave you beautiful history of the things. But then he gave 20 separate case studies of which the 20th was the one that was eventually played by Robert De Niro in the movie. And these case studies are so gorgeous in the writing and so various and so achingly told and, and mm. so forth. And they are, uh, contemporary neurologists were correct in their response. They were completely off the map. They, this is not how you're supposed to be doing it. Mm. You know, I mean, in terms of their own analysis of things, this was not the way to do it. Anyway, it is indeed one of the great works of imaginative Mm. literature of the 20th century. From the movie Awakenings, here's Robert De Niro as the patient Leonard. He's telling Robin Williams, as Dr. Sachs, how the drug L-Dopa had just brought him out of catatonia to a glimpse of another existence. Leonard? Leonard? Dr. Sayer, sit down, sit down. Why? What's wrong We've got to tell everybody. We, we, we've got to remind them. We've got to remind them how good it is. How good what is, Leonard? Read the newspaper. What's it say? All bad. It's all bad. People have forgotten what life is all about. They've forgotten what it is to be alive. They need to be reminded. They need to be reminded about what they have and what they can lose. And what I feel is the joy of life, the gift of life, the freedom of life, the wonderment of life. Lawrence Weschler's book is titled, And How Are You, Dr. Sachs? Coming up, the unearthly power of music in Oliver Sacks' life, and thinking, and therapy. Over and over, he saw music restore memory and feeling in his patients, an indestructible treasure in the deepest structures of the brain. This is Open Source. Musicophilia was one of Oliver Sacks' most endearing books, 
It was his account of a lifelong personal and professional immersion in musics of all sorts. It was my own closest encounter with Dr. Sachs, hosting a packed Cambridge forum in 2007. Paraphrasing Cole Porter, I had asked him, what is this thing called music? Now, uh, rather than try and answer your question, I, when you asked your question, I found myself thinking of the, uh, the lines from Eliot, oh, oh, um, do not ask what is it, let us go and make our visit. And, um, and basically, my sort of writing is to give examples. I really don't have much in the way of definitions or systems or general theories. Um, I suspect I was introduced to music in utero because the household was full of music. Uh, my older brothers were, were learning the piano and the clarinet and the flute, and there was chamber music, and especially Bach. And when I was five and I was asked what were my favorite things in the world, I said, smoked salmon and Bach. Um, <laughs> I had some smoked salmon at lunch today. Um, the, uh, 70 years later, things, things may not have changed that much. Um, but to go back to the quote, I was always doubly tantalized by music. First of all, by its patterns, its symmetries, its proportions, its mathematical perfection and abstractness. And second, by, by the excruciating pleasure which it could produce uh, and the sweet pain uh, which was beyond words, beyond concepts, beyond um, expression by anything else. As a physician, I re-encountered music 40 years ago or so when I met the deeply disabled people whom I later described in Awakenings, these deeply Parkinsonian people who often couldn't initiate a single movement or sound by themselves but who could be liberated by music in the most amazing way. I once took W.H. Auden, to, whom I knew in his later days, to see uh, the music sessions with these patients. I took him partly because he was so musical. He wrote the libretto to the magic flute and lots of things. And also because his father, George Auden, had been one of the great describers of the sleepy sickness in England in the 1920s. And Auden was amazed when he saw this, and he quoted an aphorism of Novalis, uh, which says, every disease is a musical problem, and every cure is a musical solution. This seemed perfectly to fit what was going on there, although I think it's only metaphorical for other things. And then over the years, I saw the great therapeutic power of music with patients of other sorts, those with amnesia, with dementia, with aphasia, with autism, etc. With Ren Weschler, I pointed out a footnote in the text of Awakenings that seemed to tie together Oliver Sacks' diagnostic experience, his religious belief or disbelief, his love of music, his core humanism. Eventually, I came to a footnote in some of the editions of Awakenings, but not all. Right. And I got to read it to you okay. because it's Go so. Ahead. It's a footnote that bears on diagnoses, his religious belief or disbelief, his love of music, the whole thing. Here it is. I believe that though one can be beside oneself or lose oneself for years on end, the self itself is still present, always present, intact, entire. 
however withdrawn or buried it may be. I think that all psychotic distortions and splinterings of the self are relatively superficial, even though they may dominate the clinical picture. I think the ravages of physical and mental disease are both superficial, that there is something unfathomably deep beyond their reach, that this is the best and strongest and realest thing we have, and that once upon a time this was called the soul. Right. I will match you readings for readings here. He is just coming out of this long 10-year blockage and and his book, which was about a leg injury he himself had suffered, willing to stand on, has finally gone to print and he has started publishing the pieces that will become The Man Who Mistook His Wife. And he is invited to give a talk on the neurology of the soul, which he does at the New York Public Library. So we're now 1984, so 1983-84. And uh, one person asks what Oliver makes of the question of the transcendence of the soul. I can provide no sense to the notion of a dismembered soul. I am speaking precisely of the embodiment of the soul. Mm. Somebody else says, and this will lead you to Minsky, uh, and what do you make of behaviorism? Ah, the infernal science, puppetry. Behaviorism deals with an impassive it and makes no attempt to bring out the active I. An active science would give support for the idea of freedom, provide the frame for the picture. Indeed, we've spent a century building the scaffolding. Now is the time to paint a few pictures. <laughs> um, he would always attack computation, computers, and so forth, artificial intelligence. And he, he once said, the one thing a personal computer can't do is precisely to interface. A computer can't do a face. And then at one point he was asked, do you believe in God? And his answer, more or less in lines with that footnote, is, I believe in the divine. Mendelssohn is divine. Hmm. I believe in grace. All natural movements are graceful. I believe in the mystical mathematics of the heavens, which is to say grace beyond the algorithm of causality. What about out-of-body experiences in those who've just returned from death's brink? Hell, he said, one has visions of heaven all the time. Ain't it true? He he was an atheist. He was more of a Spinoza, I guess. Nature was God. Or, right. Uh, was Spinoza uh, had been one of his, you're calling them one contemporaries? Of Absolutely. Spinoza would be one of the people he would have regular conversations with. One day he said to me, I was just driving and I was out of the country and I literally saw a sheep leap. The sheep just leapt straight up into the air. He said, it was clearly an expression of sheer festivity. Ah, I wish I could tell Kant about it. You write about a moment when he came to the United States in Boston in 1960, mainly to see Marvin Minsky at MIT, Mr. Original Artificial Intelligence, his sax speaking. At the time, I stood in awe of the whole AI artificial intelligence enterprise. I'd like to visit him again today and attack him. Really, I can't figure out how someone as gifted musically as Marvin Minsky can square that with the aspirations of AI. Everything to do with AI is golem-making. It's worse than perverted. It's sinister. Its highest possibility would be toward Pavlov's puppet theater. Right, that's Oliver. Ren Wesler, I I want you to sort of um, summon Oliver Sacks as our doctor, in a way, but then as our teacher, in the way he looked at people, taking in imagination, but the sense of 
an invulnerable soul inside the person you're talking to. An inviolate soul. Yeah, yeah. He's not looking at a printout of your sequenced genome. What is he telling us about how to find ourselves, how to look at other people? First of all, the thing to be said is that's not how he approached most people in the world. In his life, he was in a corkscrew knottedness of neuroses and projections, and he often had a very difficult time being there, present. He would Mm. go off, he would daydream, he'd just be absent. It wasn't that he was irresponsible, but he was not, you couldn't rely on him in his Mm. dailiness, except for that he was always hilariously funny. But having said that, with his patience and in his writing, Mm. he did model a certain kind of of being in the world. Yeah. Model it for us. I mean, and it's fun to explore it with you, I'm going to say, just face-to-face as we're doing. I think it does have to do with that woman of inhaled breath just now. Hmm. It has to do with with just being present in some profound way to each other. You know, it's it's hard to to write a prescription. Again, it can just be modeled. Hmm. I noticed the way that we both got our legs the same way. <laughs> and what, how are we mirroring each other? What is the timbre of our voices, you know? Uh, there is respect, mm. and all the more respect for affliction. There is offense at meanness and at anything that... Uh, at cruelty. Mm. Uh there is a sense of looking for each other's story. Mm. One of the things he often, and this would drive doctors crazy, is he Mm. would say to a patient who was in a seriously difficult situation, he would say that you are privileged. You are out there at the edge of human experience. You are, you know, Sinbad the (laughs) sailor. You are an Arabian knight, you know, and, and nobody had talked to the patients like that. And you, to some extent, are able to tell us what it's like to give us, you know, an account. You are so brave. There was a man who leaned at 45-degree angle, and he thought he was straight, and he thought everybody else was at 45 degrees. He had been a carpenter, and he said, I've been thinking, doctor, do you think if I got a level, mm. you know, the thing with the bubble, that you can figure out where things are level when you're hanging a picture or something? And I put that on the rim of my glasses. Would that help? And wow. so Oliver had that made for him. <laughs> it was a problem because everybody else was at 45 degrees, but still it was it solved the problem for him. One of the things he would always say is that the patient is the doctor. One time we were with a woman who had fallen back into deep, deep depression. And she said to him, do you think I should have electroshock treatment again? His answer to her was, well, sweetheart, you're the doctor. Mm which is to say, I have my own feelings about it, but I've seen it. But at the end of the day, she knew that, and she should think about it. And he was allowing her to be the agent in the situation. There was another time where we were with a patient who was a PCP addict. And he turns to me with her listening, and he says, PCP, that was the one drug I would never take. He said, I was once at <laughs> a room full of PCP, people who had taken PCP, and that was pretty scary. Even though I was... You know, buzzed on speed, I could tell that that was not something you do. And then he turned to her and said, you know, dear, PCP, try to keep it maybe to once a month. Grass anytime you want, marijuana anytime you want, but but I am nothing if not a compromiser. <laughs> but this kind of 
engaging the person, you, you know, that you are a responsible being and, and I am not the authority over you and I'm going to see you that way. Bring all of his hacks to the witness stand on the transformation underway as we speak toward genomic medicine, to thinking of ourselves, everything about us, but especially diseases, as something wrong with our DNA that now can be sequenced, examined, cell by cell. What would he say? He would grant that it is something that's interesting, and there may be interesting, valuable things that will come out of it. He would not expect that there was going to be any pharmacopoeia that will solve things, although there are things that might help to some degree. At the same time that he was at Beth Abraham, he was at a migraine clinic. Hmm. And most of the doctors, patients would come and just say, so what can you give me? What can you give me? Hmm. And if that kind of patient came to Oliver, they'd say, you you should probably talk to some of the other doctors. But if they got patients who would say, when I have these migraine auras, you know, What's going on? What what could that mean? They said, oh, you better go talk to Dr. Sachs, you know. Mm. And the other doctors would give 15 minutes. His honor would spend an hour and a half, but bill for 15 minutes. And this drove them crazy and so mm. forth. But he would observe that in most cases, the pharmacopoeia works for a while, then doesn't or ceases to be as helpful. And that even when it is helpful, it's it's important to see the person beyond that and mm-hmm. for the person to try to integrate and use the, the perplex, the illness, as an occasion for self-expression, for self-discovery, for self-realization, and not merely a prevention of being able to do that. On the contrary, he was often interested in some of these things, you know, and he could have conversations, but he didn't find it at the end of the day to be the the point of being on earth you know yeah the whole science whatever it is medicine is moving so fast now 15 years ago we did a program and we called it the doctor will google you now so much information was right. coming online right. 15 years later we're approaching a point where you'd have to say the google will doctor you now uh we have so much information not about ourselves only but vast masses of the population comparative genomes and, right. and DNA. What would he caution these doctors about saying, oh, by the way, don't forget, there's a patient there. There's a self there. Well, partly there that. is a consciousness there. There is a soul there. I'm going back looking at my book, and I'm remembering, this is April 26, 1984, this lecture he was giving about the neurology of the soul, quote, you know, and, mm. and pulling things together, Oliver now soared to his conclusion. The Cartesian notion of man as a machine is tremendously powerful and indeed was absolutely necessary for the rise of an empirical objective science. But it is not enough. It cannot tell us about the personal, the I, inside this physiological. A purely physiological explanation offends common sense and one's own egotism. Mechanistic neurology needs to be complemented by an existential neurology of face, Mm. of internal landscape, of the individual. Until we achieve such a conjunction, we can never hope to fathom the mysteries of perception and action, but will remain lost in the empty labyrinths of empiricism. Mm. We need, if it's not a contradiction in terms, a size of the individual or at the very least, one that does not do violence to the individual. Lawrence Wechsler, you have summoned that extraordinarily interesting man and I 
in your book, and I want to say even more maybe in this conversation. I can't thank you enough. Well, thank you. Near the end of Awakenings, the movie, the actor Robin Williams, playing Dr. Sachs, is reflecting on the adventure in consciousness of patients emerging from catatonia, only to return to someplace like where they'd been. We can hide behind the veil of science and say it was the drug that failed, or that the illness itself had returned, or that the patients were unable to cope with losing decades of their lives. But the reality is, we don't know what went wrong any more than we know what went right. What we do know is as the chemical window closed, another awakening took place. The human spirit is more powerful than any drug. And that is what needs to be nourished. With work, play, friendship, family. These are the things that matter. Lawrence Weschler's book is And How Are You, Dr. Sachs? Open Source is a proud affiliate of Hub & Spoke, a collective of energetic, idea-driven podcasts. Here's another one to check out, Culture Hustlers, a show about the intersection of art and business from producer Lucas Spidey. Try his most recent episode, The Miseducation of Creators, which asks why art schools are so allergic to the idea of teaching students how to make a living. Look for it at culturehustlers.com and check out all the Hub and Spoke shows at hubspoke.org and check out all the open source shows too at radioopensource.org and if you like what you hear think of leaving a tip for the team that brought you the world's first podcast 15 years and going strong our show this week was produced by Connor Gillies Adam Coleman and the artist Susan Coyne George Hicks is our engineer Mary McGrath runs our back ward I'm Christopher Leiden. Join us next time on Open Source. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.